0: Context, um, God has reigned up upon Sodom Gomorrah, his destruction, his fire and brimstone, he's pulling Lot out and his two daughters. And um, we pick it up there, verse 27. Hear the word of God to you. Sean, could you lower this just a little bit because it's a little ringy. Thank you. I think that, You know, just use the master. Just go down with the big master on the, the red one. Good, thank you. Thanks so much. All right, here's the word of God to you this morning. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the plain, and he saw dense smoke rising from the land, like smoke from a furnace. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham, And he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. Lot and his two daughters left Zoar and settled in the mountains, for he was afraid to stay in Zoar. He and his two daughters lived in a cave. One day the older daughter said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is no man around here to lie with us, as is the custom all over the earth. Let's get our father to drink wine and then lie with him and preserve our family line through our father. That night they got their father to drink wine and the older daughter went in and lay with him. He was not aware of it when she lay down or when she got up. The next day the older daughter said to the younger, Last night I lay with my father. Let's get him to drink wine again tonight. And you go in and lie with him so we can preserve our family line through our father. So they got their father to drink wine that night also. And the younger daughter went and lay with him. Again, he was not aware of it when she lay down or when she got up. So both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their father. The older daughter had a son, and she named him Moab. He is the father of the Moabites of today. The younger daughter also had a son, and she named him Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites of today. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and word me. Blessed are hearts and lives this morning. You may be seated. brothers and sisters in Christ, a few Wednesday nights ago, we had five new city ladies and myself affectionately called the ladies Bible study, (laughs) except for me. And um, we were studying lots. We took a look at the sub theme that's been running through Genesis, right? It's mainly been about God and God's covenant of grace with Abraham right? If you've been with us. But you see this sub-theme, this, this nephew Lot keeps coming into the picture, in case we haven't noticed that, right? And then in chapter 19, he, he plays a big part of that, because that's where um, Abraham prayed, if there's, you know, be any ten righteous, will you spare the city? And obviously there wasn't ten, but God heard Abraham's prayer and still spared Lot, right? So there's been this sub-theme, and we looked at it from that point of view, and we looked at the... The downward spiral of a righteous man named Lot. And we, we started looking at the incremental steps that he took that continued to where he continued to compromise to the point of really spiritual destruction in the sense of in this life. His life became a mess. He lost every earthly thing. His wife turned to salt. Uh, his hope was going to be his future son-in-law's dead. The two daughters that he treasured, that he pulled out, ended up doing shameful things. And, and he ended up in a cave. Pretty horrible situation. And we figured as we looked at this, maybe we could see it as a warning for us today, as those who are righteous in Christ, like Lot was a righteous man, and see by the grace of God how we can avoid these pitfalls. And especially if we begin to see some of these signs in our own lives, then there's still time, brothers and sisters, today is the day of grace where we can still repent and not go down that road because God shows us for a reason where the road ends. So that's what I decided. And I asked the ladies, I said, hey, do you think this would be valuable to do one more sermon in chapter 19 so the whole congregation can hear it? And they said with a big affirmative thumbs up. So I said, okay, that's what I'll do. We'll preach it again. Um, I'll preach it to the whole congregation. So, God, God incidentally, because there is no coincidence, uh, I was reading a Spurgeon sermon. Don't read a lot of those, believe it or not, just for time reasons. Um, (laughs) But um, I was reading a Spurgeon sermon on Lot's wife. Remember where Jesus says, Remember Lot's wife? We talked about that a little bit last week. And I didn't uh, know he was going to do this, but at the very beginning of his sermon, he was waxing eloquently about Lot before he got. To Lot's wife, But he didn't go into the things I'm going to go into my sermon, so I had to do that myself. But, but I do want to, um, to tee up the sermon, I want to just give you a, a quote from him. It'll tee it up for us so we can jump right into it. And this is what Spurgeon says. I think it's a wonderful way to jump into it. Spurgeon says this, there is much of warning in the history of Lot himself. If Christian men are so unwise as to conform themselves to the world, Even if they keep up the Christian character in a measure, they will gain nothing by worldly association, but being vexed with the conversation of the ungodly, and they will be great losers in their own souls. Their character will be tarnished, their whole tone of feeling will be lowered, and they themselves will be wretchedly weak and unhappy. Conformity to the world is sure to end badly sooner or later. Now this is the killer. To the man himself it is injurious. And to his family, ruinous. Yeah. So what we're going to see this morning as we look at um, Genesis 19 and a few other passages in Genesis We'll see the downward spiral of a righteous man. And as we do so, though, listen, we'll ask God to truly help us learn from this bad example and avoid the pitfalls he fell into. And again, Jesus did that with Lot's wife, didn't he? Remember Lot's wife. Bad example. Don't follow it. This morning, remember Lot. Bad example. Don't follow it. So we're going to take a look at it step by step. This downward spiral. And isn't that a cool spiral, though? I thought it was kind of cool. But anyway, um, these are the steps we're going to take a look at. There are probably more, but for time's sake, I picked the five big ones. And um, you see the summary up there. Um, I'm going to deal with them each one by one, so I'll I'll list them um, for you. But we're going to take a look at the first one, downward spiral number one, living by sight, not by faith. That was a huge one. I think it led to all the rest, in my humble opinion. And we'll see if that's true by the time we get to the end. So this is the one time, I, a few times I want you to turn to a different passage in Genesis. Genesis 13, 10 to 11. Flip back if you can. Genesis 13, 10 to 11. Let's see where we are there. Oh, okay. And if you remember, this is the whole scenario where, Abraham's people and Lot's people, herdsmen, were fighting because they, they, were all, they, they got too big for each other. And, and Abraham said, look, why why should we? We're, we're, we're kinsmen. Why fight over this stuff? Wherever you go, I'll go the other place. So if you go to the right, I'll go to the left. You choose. That's where we're at. And this is what we read. Lot looked. Don't miss that. He looked with his eyes. He looked up and saw the whole plain of the Jordan was well watered. Like the garden of the Lord. You notice that? In other words, man, this is like garden, the garden of Eden. Like the land of Egypt, the leeks and the garlic, you know. Toward Zoar. That's interesting. Because uh, later he's going to say, can I go there? This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Moses just wanted you to know that. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out toward the east. Now, one commentator says this choice obviously was made, it was based on selfishness. Now, there's no doubt that that choice was selfish. He was definitely looking at the best land, and he picked it for himself, not worried about his uncle who had blessed him and who had, had been a covering for him for all those years. Instead, he was selfish. But I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to disagree in this sense. I think it's a lot more specific than just selfishness. I think the thing that Lot was guilty of was living mostly for the here and now, for earthly comfort and reward, rather than instead of living according to the values of the life of the world to come. That was his issue. His issue was he wanted his rewards here, and he wanted them now. And he was not thinking of eternity. So, for example, Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 4, 18. We fix our eyes not on what is seen. And notice the idea here is fixing our eyes. We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Why, Paul? Because what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is what? Eternal. Eternal. Paul is saying you want to invest in something that's going to give you eternal dividends. You know, there's an old song from Glass Harp. Never is a long time. Well, so is forever. That's a long time. You notice this is why conversely, this is why positively Abraham gave Lot the choice of the land in chapter 13. Why? Why? Because the Bible tells us what was in Abraham's heart and what his eyes were fixed on. Hebrews eleven sixteen says this. He was longing, that is Abraham, was longing for a what? A better country. What kind? A heavenly one. Now listen, all the Bible's teaching on the resurrection of the dead on the life of the world to come, on heaven, the new heavens, the new earth, should have tremendous impact on the way we live our lives as Christians here and now. It's not just pie in the sky. It's not just laying around on the couch saying, what's heaven going to be like? (laughs) I remember I used to do that when I was a young believer. I'm not saying it's totally wrong, but that's not the main thing. The main thing is, okay, I know heaven's coming, and I know the new city's coming down from heaven, and I know time is short what am I going to do with my life that's going to stand the test of time that when this is all gone and the smoke is cleared, I have some kind of legacy of faith that Jesus can can say, yeah, I worked through you and you trusted me and your values were in accordance with what matters. So this is what it means. Let me give you a little punchline here. It means we don't have to have it all now We don't need the best of what this world has to offer. We don't need to get the glory. You ever notice people are like, always want to take credit? If you know Jesus, it don't matter who gets the credit. And hopefully, you want Jesus to get the credit for the good stuff. I take the credit for my mess-ups, because i got plenty of them. We don't need ultimate vindication. You know, when, oh Lord, when? We don't, even satisfaction, Listen. In this world, you're never going to have full satisfaction. Even as a Christian. It's not coming. And so many of us, part of the problem issue in our Christian walk is that we're still looking for it and still waiting for it here. And then we have the audacity to blame God like he promised it in this world. Now, here's the, the great thing. We can trust God that our lives now are hidden With Christ in God, and that when Christ appears, we will also appear with Him in glory. By the way, that's a quote. Colossians 3, 3 to 4. Didn't make that up. So here's here's the thing. We every day we have the choice whether or not we can stoke the fires of faith by storing up our treasures in heaven, so that our hearts will increasingly be there and not be engrossed in the things of this world. Now look, I want to give a little caveat here in case you think I'm preaching something that I'm not. There's nothing wrong with being a good steward or being a wise steward. And if you're able to make wise decisions, financial investments, so that your family will be taken care of should the Lord give you a long life on this earth. There's nothing wrong with that. And by the way, Abraham had just as much as Lot. So we're not, this isn't rich people are bad, poor people are good. That's not what we're saying. Abraham was rich too. So you know. But Tillotson still puts it best. This is the point. So this I don't want you to miss. He who provides for this life, but takes no care for eternity, is wise for a moment, but a fool forever. That's pretty good, isn't it? Listen, more importantly, if you don't like Tillotson, well, hopefully you like Jesus. He said this, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So having money, not having money, not the issue. Having things, not having things, not the issue. The question is, do things, does money have you? And boy, they had their claws in lot. They had them in good. Let's see what my next quote is. Nope, okay. C.S. Lewis says this. You know how to get C.S. Lewis in here. Prosperity knits a man to the world. He feels that he's finding his place in it, while in reality, it's finding its place in him. Now think about it. Lot's wife experienced the judgment of God because she disobeyed the angel's clear charge not to look back as she was being delivered from the horrible destruction of Sodom. But here's the thing that's chilling to me. Her looking back, it wasn't this one momentary lapse of unbelief. Her looking back showed what was there all along a heart of worldliness that would not break with the things. Listen, because the Bible talks about when your heart is set on the pleasures, the treasures, the comforts, and the values of this world, then you are opposed to God and His world, His kingdom. We'll see that in a minute. Now Lot didn't look back. He and his daughters fled to Zoar. They were rescued from the judgment that fell upon Sodom. But the problem is this story is still not a happy one, is it? He's not held up in the Bible as an example to follow. We'll talk about the quote that we quoted from earlier. But actually it's a solemn warning of just how tragic. Listen, this is important a believer's life can become when they have one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom of God. Something's going to give. One quote from John Piper. He says this. When you become so blind that the maker of galaxies and ruler of nations and knower of all mysteries And lover of our souls becomes boring, then only one thing is left, the love of the world. For the heart is always restless. It must have its treasure. If not in heaven, then on the earth. Isn't that powerful? That's some powerful stuff. We're going to see this even more clearly as we look at downward spiral number two, and that is flirting with the world. So he fixed his eyes on what was seen, did not live for eternity, and the second downward spiral we're going to see is that he flirted with the world. We see this in chapter 13, verses 11 to 13, and then again, 14, verse 11. Let me just read them for time's sake. The two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan. While Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents, what? Near Sodom. So he's cozy enough, isn't he? To this place that's about to get destroyed. Because look at what God says here, verse 13 through Moses. Now the men of Sodom were what? Wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. He's snuggling up. But then he doesn't just flirt. What does he do in 1411? You remember when uh, they came and they, uh, the other kings came and took over Sodom? Remember? Took the people captive? Well, we read this. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food. Then they went away. They also carried off Abram's Abraham's nephew Lot and his possessions since what? He was living in Sodom. So in other words, first he's cozying up. And that led to what? Now he's living in. Sound familiar? That's the way sin works, doesn't it? We play with it a little bit. No, no, I'm not into it. And the next thing you know, we're in it. It's a serious spiritual disease. Okay, that's not it. James 4.4 puts it this way. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Of course James isn't talking about befriending sinners. We need to do that. Nor is he talking about when he says the world in the environment. We need to care for the environment. No, what he's specifically talking about is being a friend of that world system or a world spirit, the spirit of worldliness that's diametrically opposed to the values and rule of King Jesus and his kingdom. Someone once insightfully said this: Worldliness is what any particular culture does to make sin look normal and righteousness look strange. Yes, wow. that is, isn't it? I'm putting this down a minute because I got to preach. It's been mulling with me. I'd like to say this past week, but it hasn't. It's been mulling with me probably the last ten years. Rutrow, get your seatbelts on. Powerful quote because it's so true. Because how often have you been approached by someone who doesn't know the Lord, who's following the world system, and they, they kind of come at you as, I'm an enlightened, up-to-date, sophisticated person. And they try to shame you into submission on whatever topic you're talking about by saying, oh, you're I know you, you're not one of those intolerant, bigoted people Narrow-minded people that hold to that archaic notion that sex is only proper between one man and one woman in the bonds of holy matrimony. Because they want the obvious answer is going to be, oh well, no, I'm, I'm, I'm up to date. Oh, I have never think that. Followers of Jesus have always been viewed as strange by the world, in case you haven't noticed it worldly standards when we're judged and our culture is certainly getting further and further away from the bible's teaching on what is right and wrong there's no question four decades ago francis, Sheffer, uh, francis Schaeffer francis made this stinging comment tell me what the world is saying today and i'll tell you what the church will be saying in seven years ouch I remember a number of years ago, I I made this comment uh, to some of my fellow believers when I was in upstate New York. And I said, Mark my words, the evangelical church, not the liberal church, is very soon going to see nothing wrong with same sex marriage. And the people smirked at me like, You're such an overacting alarmist. No one's laughing now. Now we're in the fight of our lives, not just on that issue. I just use that as a one little example. Take the whole abortion debate. Yeah, I'm hitting the buttons today, aren't I? But just listen to me. Bear with me for a moment here. We used to, in the 80s, way back then, I know, it was a long time. ago. When the oldies, we used to play the oldies, right? But in the 80s, the argument used to be we'd go back and forth whether an unborn child was a child or not. Remember that argument? That was the big argument. You want to know how the culture has changed? Now, those who believe in abortion... Don't debate that anymore. They acknowledge it's a child. And they still just passed a law that up until the moment the child comes out of the womb, it can be killed. If you would have said that in the 80s, people would have said, no way, Americans would never put up with that. Yeah, we do. One more. People today who call themselves evangelical Christians put up video. I saw this just the other day. They put up a video of African-American ladies beating each other up. And they said under it in the caption, look who's doing it. Yeah. This is a Christian person. What are they insinuating? That a whole race is intrinsically evil. You understand the argument? Now, I could do that with any, any, I could find any bad situation to put up and and try to pick on who's doing it. You follow me? Racism is worldliness, and it has no place in the church of Jesus Christ. And yet we let things like that creep in before you know it. You know, it's that old illustration of the the frog in the pot. You've all heard it. You throw it in the boiling water, it's going to go, wow! But you put it in some cold water and then you boil it slowly, what happens? Well, this is, no, it's a hot tub. Well, I'm starting to get a massage until the next thing you know, it's lunch. Turn with me to First John two fifteen to 17. We'll get a better understanding of what worldliness really is. So, you know, I'm not, this isn't coming from my mind. I'm not that creative, by the way. This is what John says. 1 John 2.15-17 Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, notice what he's talking about here, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away. But the man who does the will of God lives forever. Cravings of sinful man, lust of his eyes, boasting of what he has and does. That's not from God, John says. It's from the world. And as we, if we look at Lot through the lens of this passage of 1 John, we see how deeply the world was beginning to take root in his heart and his life. And we see how important it is for us to fight against that with all the weapons of righteousness that God has given at our disposal. This is how John Wesley, you want to know what worldliness is? best definition I ever heard in one sentence is from John Wesley. And he says this, whatever cools my affection toward Christ is of the world. And I think it's right there. Can I get an amen? If you're engrossed in something and, and that makes you turn further away from Jesus, then ding, 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 what do we have for him, Johnny? That's the world. You know it. Downward spiral, number three. The next two points are very short. But downward spiral, number three, is compromising your convictions. Um, look at chapter 19. Now we'll be in 19 till the end here. Chapter 19, this is the, the verse that you wondered why I skipped last week. I ain't skipping it this week. 19.6, this is when the angels came, remember, to uh, Sodom. They were going to destroy it, but they were going to stay in, in the... Um, City square, Lot insists that they come to their house, to his house. Remember, they stay with them, and then it says the men, oldest to the youngest, surrounded the house. Remember that? They wanted the angels. And they asked them, give us the men so that we might have sex with them. You remember that from last time? The men from the city wanted the angels because they wanted to molest them. Now look at chapter 19, verse 6. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you, and you could do what you like to them. But don't do anything to these men, for they've come under the protection of my roof. Wow. That's all kinds of messed up. Now, it's true, I mean, just culturally we do have to understand this, that in the ancient East it would have been a complete shame if you could not protect your guests from out of town. That was a very holy thing in that culture. However, and and it's true, Lot was, let me just say this real quick before I start ripping on Uh, He was right to feel the vexation and, and the outrage of even the thought of such a wicked thing, of his guests being molested by people from the same sex. But offering your daughters as an alternative? This shows, by the way, how weak Lot's character was becoming and how far he had let the world conform him into their mold. And you know, I, I love to be able to preach thus saith the Lord, so I don't do a lot of speculating, but this is one I feel pretty safe about. I have a feeling that the lot who first left his homeland with Abraham to join on this great pilgrimage, I have a feeling if he would have heard about his behavior that he did here back then, I think he would have been appalled. How many times in my own Christian life when I see that I've slipped into something, I look back and I know the young santo would have ripped into me. That's what compromise does to us. And and what he was thinking here probably was the ends justifies the means. But listen, this is important for us to know as a lesson. You never fight evil with evil. Never. It's never going to end well. When in trying to fight the devil, you use the devil's methods. Because guess what happens? He already wins. He's like, cool, I won. Don't even matter what happened. I got you to go to the dark side. Paul puts it this way do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with what? Good. So Derek Kidner explains the scenario well when he writes this. Doing his best, Lot, has jeopardized his daughters, enraged his townsmen, and finally required rescue by those he was trying to protect. The angel's visit had shattered the uneasy peace in which he had lived for far too long. What happens when your life begins to reflect a series of compromised convictions? Downward spiral number five. And there's only one more after that. And this one will go real short. 1914. So Lot went out and spoke to his son-in-law, sons-in-law, who were pledged to marry his daughters. He said, hurry and get out of this place because the Lord's about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was... Wow. Think about it this way. Lot's future sons-in-law couldn't, couldn't even take him seriously. They thought he was joking. Now, I don't know about you, but any serious-minded believer in Christ would be heartbroken to know that they lost their testimony. It would, it would break my heart, almost irreparable, to know that I can't be used to the Lord, that no one even takes me seriously for Jesus, because I'm so much like the world, you can't tell the difference. You know, if you were convicted of being a Christian in a court of law, would there be enough evidence to convict you type of thing? Billy Graham once had a Hindu, a student who was Hindu, look him in the face and say, I want to be a Christian, but I need to see one first. And Graham said, and he was looking at me. He said that was the most powerful sermon that was ever preached to me. You know. Jesus put it this way, you are the salt of the earth, Matthew 5.13. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how could it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. Don't we see that with Lot at the end? Bud Robinson, I want to quote this. He says, I don't care how loud a brother shouts and how high he jumps, just as so he walks straight when he comes down. I love that. Couldn't agree more. Because I like to shout and jump. But then I got to walk, right? All right, last downward spiral. And this one is, I'm going to call it drunkenness and its sad consequences. Drunkenness and its... We read that awful thing. I don't want to read it again, if that's okay with you. Uh, verses 30 to 38. Um, But again, it shows you that God wrote this book because he didn't hide nothing. (laughs) He shows us the ugly, the good, the bad, the ugly. You know, if if men uh, uh, devised Christianity and and built this system, we wouldn't have put that in there. Right? Do this very succinctly. Ephesians 5, you all know it, starting with verse 18. Do not get drunk on wine. Can I say that again? Do not get drunk on wine. No, it doesn't say don't drink wine, but it does say what? Don't get drunk. Which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, look, if I can't get drunk and carry on like a fool, then what can I do? Praise God. Give them thanks. Give them the glory. Hoot and holler. Have a great time at church. You with me? It's not don't get drunk but do nothing and stand around and be bored. It's don't be under the influence. That's what we call being drunk, by the way. He was under the influence of, of alcohol, but be under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's all about self-control. That's where real power is at. Anybody can just... It's very difficult to keep it control. Like when Jesus could have wiped out the whole crew of them when they were coming to crucify him. And he just submitted himself to the Father. That's power. anyone who has spent a season of their life in that pitiful style like i have lifestyle of being drunk very frequently knows what it's like to wake up the next morning only to be embarrassed and to be horrified to learn what a fool you made of yourself the night before when you were under the influence you know it's like you say i did that <laughs> so you read this you think how could lot of not know well uh, i understand unfortunately because unfortunately, when people get drunk, sometimes that's a big blackout. And, and, and some of us who unfortunately did it for a season in our lives, we go, oh man, I don't even want, please don't tell me. I don't even want to know what happened last night. Because we remember kind of what happened before that, and we knew where it could have been heading. You with me? Roman philosopher Seneca put it this way. Drunkenness is nothing else but voluntary madness. It's true. All right, we're going to get ready to land the ship here. But Derek Kidner, one more quote from him, and I think this is really good to listen to. He says, it's a superb study of the two aspects of judgment. The cataclysmic, that's against Sodom, as the cities disappear in brimstone and fire, and the gradual, as Lot and his family reach the last stages of disintegration, breaking up in the very hands of the rescuers. Isn't that powerful? Who actually got rescued out of the whole family of Lot when you look at it? Lot. And barely at that. Everything else disintegrated right in front of his face. He lost his wife. He lost his daughters, fiancés. His daughters did shameful things. He ends up in a cave. And by the way it says he moved from Zoar and went to this other place to live in a cave because he was afraid to live in Zoar. Don't you remember before he was like, oh, can I please stay in Zoar? And now he's even afraid to stay there. You can imagine how traumatic that would have been to see fire and brimstone going on the place that you lived in. He's traumatized. So this is an important thing for you to see. Not every ending is a fairy tale ending. This is real. Life is real. The decisions you make, the choices you make will have consequences. Sorry, Cinderella. And in this case, there's no all's well that ends well. Just genuine tragedy. So what's the takeaway? Here's the takeaway. Worldly Backslidden Christians, of all people on this earth, are the most miserable. Why? Let me tell you why. Because you can no longer enjoy sin and worldliness with abandon like you did before you knew Jesus. Because now that you know Jesus, you just simply can't get the unhindered pleasure of those wicked things that you used to indulge in. Notice 2 Peter 2, 7, 8, we read earlier, you don't have to turn to it. It says, if he rescued Lot, a righteous man, which is hard to see in this, isn't it? Who was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men. For that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. He lived in torment. At any moment he could have pulled away from it. But he didn't. And instead continued to suffer. Second takeaway, first was a warning. Second one is a warning, but in a a positive sense. Even if we find that we have been headed in the direction that Lot has been headed in, or or flirting with it, or messing with it, we still have time to do a complete 180, by the grace of God. And I'll show you how I know this. Um, I think I skipped that quote. No, there it is. Yeah, there it is. Um, James four four Hey, we've been doing that at Stockton, right? four four You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think the scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? But he gives us more what? Grace. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Here's the key. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he'll come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. And then that great verse. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Rick Warren once said something I'll never forget. And it first took me aback and I had to make sure this was right. You're as close to God as you want to be. This verse says he's right. What does it tell us to do? Draw near to God. Bob, who led me to the Lord, used to say, if you feel distant to the Lord, who moves?" wasn't Jesus, right? And so the gospel in all this is he gives more grace. And the gospel in this is come near to God. You know, it's interesting because God loved Lot so much that he still rescued him. And so Lot was still a righteous man. In the Christ who at that time was to come. And the truth is. We're going to take a look at. uh, After we have a break next week. We're going to take a look at Abraham. And we're going to find out. That even the best of men. Still need grace. And they're only righteous. Because of Jesus. So let's learn from Lot. And let's. Trust. In the one who came. To not only take away our sins but help us die to them on a day-to-day basis let's pray Father these words were difficult some parts of this passage were very sobering and yet we thank you that you love us enough that you speak them to us. we thank you that you don't want us to you don't want us to be like the world or experience um, the sad suffering and tragedy that even lot experienced and Father we pray that we would each person under the hearing of your word here that we would take it to heart that we would be among those who humble ourselves that you might indeed lift us up but Father we pray thy kingdom come thy will be done on this earth as it is in heaven may Jesus please Lord forgive us for where we have compromised. And please use us to spread your glory in this fallen place. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.